Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello, nudges. Welcome to episode 23 of Oh Behave. Today's episode is a little different. A few weeks ago, we received a letter in Oh Behave Towers, and it struck us that we thought we would share it now. Dear Oh Behave, I've been listening to your podcast since 2016, and despite the annoying intro bits at the start, I find the speakers really interesting. <laughs> I have been interested in behavioural science for two years now and have some thoughts I'd like to share. Could you fix it, make it happen for me to be in your podcast and talk about my new book, Alchemy? Yours sincerely, Roderick Sutherland, Monmouth, Wales. How are you, Rory? I'm not too bad. Oh, yeah. very good, very it's good. It's baking uh, hot in here, weirdly. Hot, We're in a tiny room, as you can probably tell. And we've got some bouncing glass, which isn't good. <coughs> So, I have a copy of your book in front of me. Um, Fifty Shades of Alchemy was the working title, I believe. Yes. Alchemy, the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense. But on the spine, it says benign bullshit. Yeah, now that's actually a pre-review copy, which has benign bullshit on the spine. Um, We didn't have the courage to do that for the um, main copy, partly because we thought people with children would be unable to buy the book. (laughs) Daddy, why does it say benign bullshit on your bookshelves? Um, there is a point about benign bullshit, which is little things which apparently gratuitous and pointless ha- nonetheless have or can have mm. a really high emotional import. So you can do something pretty good that costs you half a billion pounds, like, you know, renovating a station. And everybody goes, mm, it's kind of good, isn't it? It's a bit better than the old station. But if you put in it um, the world's longest champagne bar, as St Pancras did. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but when they renovated the old St Pancras station in London, they spent about you know half a billion pounds doing it uh, to make it the new Eurostar terminal. They upped the Undercroft. They did lots of wonderful things. And then all the PR, there must have been an ingenious PR agency around the reopening, because every single news report included the fact that it had Europe's longest champagne yes. bar in the station. Yeah. And... When you think about it, it's a pretty stupid superlative, you know. I mean, length and champagne bar, it's not really... You don't go, I went to a champagne bar last night. The longest. Really? Ever seen. It's really long. (laughs) Or, you know, I I used to go to that champagne bar, but it's not long enough. You know, know, what what do you think of the champagne bar? Well, I thought it was a bit long. What the fuck are you talking about? It's completely surreal. But this bonkers superlative captured everybody's imagination because it was a superlative. Everyone said, well, apparently New St. Pancras got Europe's long- longest champagne bar. And what it said in just, a, what, six words, okay, was this is a station which isn't just a transit hub, it's a destination in itself. In fact, it's worth going there as a meeting spot. Mm. And that's what I mean by benign bullshit, which is you can spend half a billion pounds on renovating something. But people don't have the language unless they're particular you know unless they're architects to say i particularly like the way they you know they treated mm. the architraves yeah. right but if you just go europe's longest champagne bar that's a little bit of information that's shareable that's retainable whatever and so when they later spent a billion redoing london bridge station 
the mistake they made is it's on balance it's not a terrible job actually I mean you know it's better yeah, than the yeah. station was before what I would have done is I would have just said okay down at the bottom where we've got a huge space even if it loses money we'll subsidise them we'll have Europe's largest florist you know and you'll just have a massive florist there selling loads yeah. and loads of flowers yeah, yeah. And everybody will go, you know, or you have a model railway shop mm. or something gloriously bonkers, incongruous and silly. Unexperiential, maybe. Yeah, and it's something you wouldn't expect, yeah. really. Or one of the things I'd say is that we, one of the things that we notice precisely because it doesn't make sense. It's a really strange thing, but actually it's the, it's the slight incongruous thing that gains our attention because we've evolved yes. to notice yeah, things yeah, yeah, that are a yeah, bit yeah, weird and so having that little thing where you could say I really like the new London Bridge station mm-hmm. it's got a great model railway shop slash florist slash you know I don't know you you, know, you could have a really weird kind of retail thing mm. there uh, just do something slightly eccentric and strange and the what you might call the degree of voltage around the improvement of the station psychologically even though it's a rounding error in terms of the billion pounds mm. you've spent, just becomes correspondingly much higher. Well, that did you see WordPress were doing the latest updates and no one installed... WordPress is like the biggest publishing oh, no, no, platform. No, 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 yeah. And um, there was a massive security flaw and they told everyone there was a massive security flaw and no one updated. But then they said the latest update has got five new emojis in it. Yep. And everyone, now, interestingly, does this stuff, or is there now a bit of a language to just sit in a meeting room and say, look, some of this can actually work? It's always very difficult because it's the first thing the accountant kills. Mm. The second you have any kind of cost cutting, the accountant will often kill the cherry on the top of the cake. Yeah. And actually, without the cherry, however great the icing is, the cake's kind of a bit of a disappointment. Yeah. And so, in a kind of... This is exactly what the book's about, in a sense. It's saying that uh, in our desperate attempt to rationalise the world, uh, we might be making it worse. Yeah. And the way I always describe this is the first rule of science, if you're a physicist, okay, is no magic. No magic allowed. Mm. Now, quite rightly, in physics, in aeronautics, in bridge building, for example, uh, there isn't magic. You know, everything basically obeys the laws of physics. That's that. Now, economics, in attempting to be like physics, has borrowed that thought from physics. So, in, in, in Newtonian physics, you have, I think it's the second law of thermodynamics, which is energy cannot be created or destroyed. Mm. You can't get something from nothing. It's you know, basically immutable law. And Milton Friedman got in on the act by saying there's no such thing as a free lunch. And the problem there is that when human perception is involved, in other words the translation of a stimulus from a real thing to an emotion generated by the perception of that thing, you can do magic. You can create something out of nothing just by, for example, recontextualizing the thing, telling the story about a thing, um, adding a tiny trivial detail to the thing. The point is that in human behavior, unlike physics, you can achieve magical effects. And the problem is, by trying to make our, the science of human behaviour, I think there's a reason economics is called the dismal science, in fact, is that by trying to physicise um, economics, 
what you've effectively done is you've ruled magic out of the equation. Now, the story I always tell, there are a variety of them I tell, but you can take something that's a bit crap, okay, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behaviour. So... The story I always tell is this: the, the bus from the plane to the airport. Yeah. You, know, you land at the airport and the plane's engines wind down and you look out of the window and you realise you're nowhere near an air bridge and everybody has that same thought, oh shit, it's going to be a bus. And what's interesting about that is I always had that same thought. I saw the bus as entirely negative, the poor man's alternative to the air bridge. And then one day the um, announcer, the pilot, came on and said... He framed it in an absolutely brilliant way. He said, I've, I've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is we won't be able to get you an air bridge this evening because there's a plane blocking the gate. But the good news is that the bus will take you all the way to passport control so you won't have far to walk with your bags. Mm -hmm. And I looked at my companion on the flight. I went, hold on a second, that's always true, mm -hmm. isn't it? Why didn't they tell us that before? Yeah. Because suddenly I realised that the bus, from being an inconvenience, has become a conveyance. And in a way, at a much more serious level, actually, if you do that next time, if you want to practice alchemy, next time you're on a plane and there's a bus, just say very loudly to your companion, mm. actually, I'm glad there's a bus because the bus drives you all the way to passport control so you don't have to walk past 27 Toblerone shops just to get to your luggage. You know, the bus drops you off, you go through passport control, bingo, you're in the luggage hall. Mm. It's actually a time saver and an effort saver. And... Framed that way, it's a positive, or at least neutral, not a negative. And so, in a weird way, I suppose Cunard did this. You were competing on speed to cross the Atlantic. And Boeing comes along, and all those ships, you know, the Queen Mary, the Normandy, the France, the whatever it is, they suddenly go, hold on, boasting that we can get across the Atlantic in, I don't know, 5.1 days, yeah, yeah. that's not going to cut it anymore, yeah. because a bloody plane can do it in one. And... So what they had to do is they said, OK, we need to reframe this so that essentially it's about the journey, not about the duration. Mm. And in their way, Cunard invented the world's cruise ship industry mm. because they said, actually, what we've got to rely on here is that people like ships and that a sea journey has a romance um, that... Um, uh, you know, just as trains have a romance in a way that cars don't... Mm ships might have a romance in a way that aircraft don't. I was reading, you're, you're a big musician, so you'll like this. Um, <laughs> big section. I, I, I was always a bit confused um, by the lyrics, just as the lyrics um, of um, uh, the Johnny Cash song um, in, in uh, The Prison, not St. Quentin, the other one, uh, um, don't make sense, because if you shot a man in Reno, you wouldn't <laughs> end up in jail in California. You built, dealt with by the Nevada Department of Yes, of course. Yeah. You know, so you know, you shot yeah. a man in Reno just to yeah. see him die. Mm. Um, uh, you wouldn't end up. Um, what was the prison called? Folsom. Folsom Prison, right, which is in California. Yes. And also, the trains wouldn't be rolling down <laughs> to San Antonio. That makes no sense at all, yeah. right? And I was always confused by the song "Midnight Train to Georgia," right? Because I, the sleeper train, I imagine. Well, well you see, little... there isn't a train, uh, any train, I don't think, leaves Los Angeles and goes to Atlanta. 
Oh, um, really? Certainly not at midnight. Yeah. And I, I, I checked it, and the original line, which the person noticed, because someone was having a row with their boyfriend and said, you know, if you continue doing that, mm. I'm going to be leaving on a midnight plane to Houston. They were texting. Yeah, yeah. Right. And the, uh, essentially, Gladys and the Pips, um, <laughs> Gladys said, no, 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 you know, they changed it to midnight, midnight train to Georgia because mm. the Pips were from Georgia anyway. Yeah, yeah. But they said, train's more romantic than plane. Hmm. And it kind of is, isn't it? And so <coughs> what Cunard said is, OK, in terms of objective metrics, we're not in the game anymore. So what we've got to do is we've got to survive on subjective metrics, the fact that people really like ships. And so one of the things I was to find interesting is that in the attempt to make the world, to rationalise and reductionize the world, we always start with objective scientific measures. Hmm. But they don't translate to perceptual measures or behavioural measures at all well. Mm. You know, we can prove that with the phrase, time flies when you're having fun. Yes. Okay? Depending on the nature of your train journey, it might actually be nice for it to be longer. Yeah. Okay? It's, you know, these things are mm. non-linear. It's not like our mood is in direct proportion to the brevity of a train journey. Taking okay? the scenic route is lovely. Mm. And sometimes it's really nice. I always go to Bristol from Waterloo because it goes through Salisbury and so forth. <coughs> and also nobody knows about the route, so the train's bloody empty and you can get a first-class ticket for about 3p. Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing there is that the obsession with assuming that in order to improve the lot of man, you have to improve the objective qualities of his surroundings uh, is fundamentally wrong and it's an attempt not to actually solve problems it's an attempt to look rational and rationality is a good way of winning an argument but just because you're rational doesn't mean you're actually right mm. in problem solving the fact that you've got a good reason for something and that that reason will help you win an argument doesn't mean that the course of action you propose is necessarily the best thing there might be a better oblique or creative or counterintuitive course of action which is harder to defend but better to implement. And so um, that's what fascinates me. I mean, interestingly, in the early days of, of developing scientific units, there was a fairly significant argument about temperature. People agreed that, okay, there's an objective concept of length and there's an objective concept of, you know, weight, mass, yeah. technically. Okay. But they had a big argument about temperature because they said, well, you can't say, because, you know, depending on the humidity level and everything else, 73 degrees or in Fahrenheit, you know, can feel, you know, very, very pleasant yeah. or, you know, yeah, nasty. Yeah. Yeah. If there's a breeze, depending on the humidity. Yeah. And they said, you can't just have an objective measure of temperature, mm. which doesn't account for human perception. Eventually, and rightly in this case, the scientists won, because for the purpose of, of chemistry, you know, what's the boiling point of X? Yeah. You need to have an objective measure of temperature. But nonetheless, the fact that temperature isn't actually perceived in that form is, if you go to America, they often say it's 73 degrees, feels like 68. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and that will factor in humidity. I, mean, I hate hot weather, but I'm absolutely happy as a pig in shit when I'm in Phoenix, because it's so dry, yeah. doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, yeah. So I can be wandering around when it's 107 in Scottsdale, mm. and I'm as happy as Larry, whereas, the, you know, 95 degrees in Houston would probably, you know, I'd start to suffer, mm. you know. And so... The interesting thing about that is that you don't necessarily need to create 
the reality in order to generate an emotion and a behaviour. The, the process of mixing stimuli to create the desired emotion and the desired behaviour is still a form of alchemy. Mm. It's not, contrary to what the economists think, it's not chemistry, it is alchemy. That you can do tiny little things um, and the objective thing can be the same, but the emotional um, consequence and can be totally different. And Bob Trivers and I were having this fantastic conversation about the business of if you stop, um, for example, if you stop to let a car out of a side junction, okay, if you do it and the guy gives you some gesture of thank you, that can be flashing his rear hazard lights. Yeah. Uh, it can be raising a hand, raising a finger. Mm-hmm. Apparently in Northern Ireland, would you believe this, there's actually a sectarian divide around how you say thank you in traffic. Really? And it's, it's, it's something like five fingers versus one finger. There is actually a way in which you can tell whether someone... There's a code in Australia, apparently. What's that one? Is it like the two-finger thing? Like, this isn't going to work, is it, on a podcast? But they're like two horizontal fingers, I think. What does that mean? Uh, it means a thank you. It's like a kind of... Oh, you so know when your hand's on the steering wheel, like a, just a thank you. Because the interesting thing is, if, if the guy says thanks, any gesture of thanks, yes. you're actually happier the than you were aligned, bef- before you perform the gesture. Yeah. If they don't acknowledge it, you're livid. Yeah. You know, I was talking to British Airways yesterday, and the at the moment, you know, obviously if you get into the BA silver or gold thing, you get lounge access, mm. and you get one guest. Now, what a lot of people would prefer to have is actually naught guests, mm. except once a year or twice a year when you travel with your whole family. Mm. You can get the whole family in. Yeah. Now, you might argue that actually a lot of the other lounge guests don't want a load of kids swanning all over yeah. the place. So I'm slightly sympathetic to the yeah. fact that it's different to change the rule. But I said, there's this huge difference between the person going, look, technically you're only allowed to bring one guest into the lounge. Let me see what I can do. And then they go, sorry, I've checked and we, we, we can't do it today. In which case I go, yeah, that's fine. Whereas if I go, can I take my family into the lounge? They go, no. Yeah. The rules say that you yes. can't take yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of yeah. like, fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's so, policy. I mean, there are lots and lots of things where the style with which you do it, and this gets down to, this is why it's like alchemy, because there are tiny, tiny little catalytic things mm. that have an absolutely immense effect on our emotions. Um, I'm a huge fan of, I think there's a concept you might call emotional efficiency, which is how do you generate the desired emotional state because if you want to, if you want to actually change behaviour or action, you need to generate an emotion. I, you know, yeah, I, yeah, the yeah. idea that we actually yes. act yeah, on the yeah. basis of reason is <laughs> yeah. delusional yeah. nonsense. You know, um, uh, and it would be very strange if we've evolved that way. Because if you think about it, I mean, every other thing on the planet manages to survive perfectly well without a faculty of reason. Yeah. Okay, so reason is patently a late addition to the human repertoire of mm. mental states and therefore it's pretty unlikely that the brain would have evolved to go after a million years of operating instinctively suddenly going i'm going to hand over control to this new experimental um you know brain we've had an upgrade we've had an upgrade right that's it i'm going to switch off now amygdala shutting down right okay not going to happen is it right so most of our behavior is still emotionally driven therefore to change behavior you've got to generate some sort of emotional um, hmm. resonance. Now you can do that with reason. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we react to all arguments in a totally cold state. But, and in order to do that, as I said, it's much closer to alchemy than it is to physics. In the, the, you know, first of all, it's non-linear, it's non-proportionate, 
you can have butterfly effects, you can have a degree of unpredictability. Yeah. And to an extent, it's also true to say that um, uh, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. Yeah. In physics, what we're doing is we're trying to find a single right answer to a perfectly defined question. Mm. And in marketing, we're trying to find one of a number of interesting answers to a question which, to some extent, we can rewrite ourselves. Because I'm wondering, like, do some marketing departments, I feel like maybe some marketing departments, because usually well, you're fighting the... Maybe well, this is it. Because the need to justify your existence... Yes, to go, well, we can't you. make any silly shit because that's what mm. people think of us anyway. So let me, let me make a bet to you, right, okay? Now, I may be wrong here, but it'll be interesting. I have never looked up on Wikipedia the um, uh, Doubletree Hotel's cookie idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, for those who don't know, if you turn up at a Doubletree Hotel, they actually have an oven under the check-in desk. So it's a voice of a whole minute. Yeah, keep, I thought it sat on it. That's why it was warm. I turned up not expecting this. I'd never heard of it. I was in a Doubletree in Chicago back in about 97. And... I think the words were to welcome you to the Doubletree Hotel. Uh, it's one, you know, because they're Midwestern, so they're as friendly as fuck. Yeah, yeah, okay. the service. Um, we'll give you some of our signature Doubletree cookies. And they hand me this bag, and I'm a Brit gang, uh, biscuits for a start. Yeah. And what the hell's all this bollocks about, right? But I took them up to my room, and I got, I got the coloring coffee machine working. I thought, well, I'm having a coffee. Got the baseball on the telly, because weirdly for a Brit, I quite like baseball. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think every country should have a sport where you try and hit a ball with a stick. <laughs> okay, you know, some kind or other. It's not right otherwise. Yeah. And so I got the baseball on the telly, got the coffee machine working, put in the non-dairy creamer. And um, uh, then, oh, I suppose I might as well have one. And they're absolutely delicious. Yeah. They're warm, they're yeah, fantastic, yeah. they're brilliant. Now, that's what I call emotional efficiency. It's a tiny little gesture. It's a rounding error in terms of cost. It's brilliant also because it follows the kind of peak end rule thing, yeah. which is if you make the initial experience very good, I now decide I like the double tree and I go around looking for corroborating evidence that it's a good thing. Confirmation. In this confirmation bias. It, and so in the same way that the Boeing 787 makes the entryway into the plane disproportionately large, mm. so the feeling of spaciousness carries over into the rest of the cabin. It's actually 14 inches narrower than the 777. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. And um, so the fantastic thing about that is I'm absolutely sh pretty convinced that it was the chief executive of the Doubletree chain who introduced yeah. that. Because he'd have the power. He'd be the only guy who's got the power to be irrational. Mm. Everybody in the marketing department, if you suggested it, you'd say, well, we, you know, we need to do a randomised control trial. Or, <laughs> you know. And, of course, it's hard to prove because the effect of things like that only shows up on longitudinal studies. Yeah. It's not like doing what you might call conversion optimization on yeah. a website where if you can increase the conversion rate by 3%, it shows up within a day. Yeah, yeah. This is something that... Now, I've, by the way, I've never been back to a Doubletree Hotel. Now, I've never had the opportunity. But 14 years later, if my so, PA said yeah. to me, do you want to stay at the Doubletree or do you mm. want to stay at the Blah? Well, okay, if it was the Drake in Chicago or something, or the, you know, I might, mm. you know. But if she said, do you want to stay at the Doubletree, do you want to stay at the Marriott? I go, I want to stay at the Doubletree because I can have their cookies. Well, that's interesting because how... Because especially if the customer can't articulate it. No, and, and it, what, it, what it does is it effectively delivers something. It's deeply anthropological, really, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Because um, I think the best example for me might be the five guys. 
Well, oh, there are several the trips. Fries, so the, fries, extra, the extra fries. The extra fries. I mean, they should. I mean, yeah, they should win a can lion for every year. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. They actually have a funny little tray which actually measures out the free fries. But everybody, you ask for small, medium, or large, and they fill the cup to the brim, and then they chuck in this extra scoop. I mean, could you get loads anyway? You get, I don't know. And I always order the small one for yeah. that reason, which I know I'm going to get a ton of extra ones. Yeah. But there's something about it which is. I mean, it also, by the way, I think it has more benefits because A, it says, when, you know, we aren't controlled by venture capital. You yeah. Know, we're not a bunch of stingy, money-grubbing bastards. We're yeah. actually here. Yeah, yeah. Now, a logical person would say, make the cups bigger, but that wouldn't work. Mm. The second thing would be, actually, which is an additional benefit, which may, they may, may never have occurred to them, is, you know that some bastard always wants to nick your fries, right? <laughs> Drives me fucking yeah, nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And someone will always nick your chips. Yeah. Now, weirdly, I'd resent them nicking my chips from the bottom of the bag mm. less than I'd resent them nicking the chips from the bottom yeah, yeah, fries yeah. for the benefit yeah. of Americans listening who are confused, okay? <laughs> you know, weirdly, I might say to one of my kids, look, you can have the chips from the bottom of the bag. Yeah. I'm going to have the ones in the cup because yeah. they're mine, <laughs> right? In a way that, weirdly, if you made the cup bigger, I'd still resent my kids nicking the chips from the cup. And um, it's, all, it's all bonkers, isn't it, really? Cause, well, because when you used is... to go to McDonald's, when you used to find, like, three chips, it's Ooh, like, yeah, you yeah. think I beat the system. Yeah, there was always one slightly brown one, wasn't there? Oh, yeah, I beat the system. Yeah. And, and those things, which are the things which... In a way, the way I always describe it is that the problem with economic rationality is it's like water. We don't notice it, okay? And the, the reason I'm saying is there's a great book by a guy called Mark Changizi, and it's all about human psychophysics and perception. And I can't remember what it's called, but there aren't that many people called Changizi. So <laughs> yeah, it's C-H-A-N-G-I-Z-I. Yeah. And... Um, one of the things he says is there's a reason why water doesn't taste of anything, which is we've evolved not to notice the taste because we need to notice anything in it that isn't water. Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And in the same way, what you might call totally logical, rational behavior doesn't attract our attention precisely because it's rational. What we need to notice disproportionately are the outliers, the oddities. Mm. Just as we've got a thing which you, you might call pareidolia, which is we're overly keyed up to spot two eyes and nose and a mouth. Yeah. Okay. Could be prey, could be a predator, could be the ability to read human facial expression. It's all tied up in pareidolia. And so we're calibrated to be hypersensitized to that. Yeah. I think that those little things like flashing, truck drivers do it with the two um, uh, the hazard lights, don't they? Yeah. If you flash your lights to tell a truck driver it's okay to pull in, mm he'll generally put his hazards on for a couple of, fla- couple of flashes. And if you don't get that from a bus... No, exactly. Living. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And so we kind of notice disproportionately those things which an economist would never recommend. Mm. And so in a way, you could put it a very simple way, which is economists think that we run on utility. And to a great extent, we run on meaning. And meaning, unlike utility, is contextually determined and can be reconstructed or reframed. Because it feels like there's, in a lot of the examples, in some of the examples you talk about in the book, it feels like that's a result of waste, Ooh. almost. Like kind well, of I think it has to be. You might argue there's a costly signalling thing going on, which yeah. is that to be meaningful, something has to involve a degree of discretionary effort, discretionary mm. generosity. 
it's rather like, how do you... <coughs> I always ask this question of wedding invitations, okay? You've got to do something to say this is special. So, you know, simply emailing your friends and going, the wedding of so-and-so, so-and-so will take place on this date at this place, okay? Mm. Doesn't cut it. Quick WhatsApp group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quick start a WhatsApp group called Mike's my Wedding. wedding. <laughs> my Wedding. Right, exactly, yeah, you got it. So you say John's church. Now, so, one way you can do it, which is the conventional form, if you've got a bit of cash, is you get a load of posh-printed, thermographed or, or um, engraved invitations with curly-whirly writing, and you put gold gilt around the edge, and you put them yeah. in an envelope which is lined in tissue paper by mm-hmm. Smithson of New Bond Street, and you, obviously, you handwrite the address, and you put a stamp on the thing. Yeah. And I look at that and go, shit, whatever this is, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. You can ruin the whole effect by putting it through your company franking machine, by the way. <laughs> okay, so, you know, you know, that would really ruin it, wouldn't it? You know, Ogilvy, a great place to do your ads. Would you like to come to Mike's wedding, right? Okay, that would crap on the whole thing, wouldn't it? Save myself four quid. <laughs> Save myself four quid, Right. The very fact that you save the money on the postage would invalidate the whole thing. Yes. Now, okay, let's say you haven't got much money, okay? You could invite someone to your wedding by email, but the way you'd have to do it is you'd have to write a song which would include the necessary information of finding the wedding. Yes. And the song would have to involve effort, rhyming, talent, mm. a degree of difficulty. Yes. And you'd write the song about Mike's wedding and you'd post it on YouTube and you'd send a link to people by email. Yes. That's getting okay. Or you make it really funny. And all these things, poetry is more difficult to write than prose. Songs are more difficult to write than words, if you think about it. Okay. All of these things, jokes are funnier than than, um, non-jokes. You know, it's hard to do humour. And all these things are a way of signalling discretionary effort. Another way you might do it, and sometimes advertisers do it, I mean, you could think of the Colin Kaepernick thing for Nike, yeah. is bravery. Yeah. So, something that's so, something, something that, that puts you... So you're either putting something at risk by being like a bit brave in your joke, like, you know, you're sailing close to the wind. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could, you know, if you did a, if you did a slightly close-to-the-wind joke... Mm-hmm. Um, so why it's very different doing a best man speech, by the way, because you've got two audiences. Yeah, you've got your contemporaries yeah. and you've got all their parents. Yeah. And what's a risque joke for your contemporaries is downright shocking for the oldies, yeah. you see. Yeah. And so that's why it's quite difficult when you've got two target audiences. Mm. But, but bravery would be something. What you've got to do is you've got to show here I'm, I've got skin in the game. Mm. And it could be I'm putting my reputation at risk. It could be I'm spending a lot of time writing a song. It could be that I've just... Wrote, written a big check to Smith's on a new Bond Street, but it's something that's in scarce supply, bravery, and you use the very scarcity of the thing to give the signal its distinctiveness. So, that, I mean, at a very simple level, okay, if you get something this evening when you get home, if you got something by FedEx or UPS, you'd open it first. Yeah. yeah. Okay, because someone spent eight quid sending me this thing, yeah. okay, this isn't going to be irrelevant. Mm. And so I find that very interesting, which is that meaning often actively requires that we abandon logic. And so, of course, you know, those cookies, which, you know, would be the first thing the finance director would want to yeah, kill, wouldn't call, he? Yeah, yeah. He'd be going and looking at it, well, total... Because I imagine, actually, see, if you put it on a balance sheet, the Doubletree probably spends, mm-hmm. I don't know, a few million dollars a year on the cookies, okay? Yeah. It's not an immaterial amount no, of money. No, 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 no. I bet there's some guy looking at this balance sheet, you know, basically, 
you know, in a kind of yeah. state about it. Now, the chief executive could probably do it and say, I want the cookies. Yeah. Richard Branson did it with Virgin Atlantic, where they were the first airline to have films in economy, yeah. seat-back TVs, at least the first one in the UK. And he handed out chalk ices during the film. Now, yeah. that kind of thing, if, you, if you're the owner of the airline or the chief executive, you can get it through. It's really hard to get that through. If I went to the BA board with a recommendation for chalk ices, yeah. you know, the what you might call the burden of proof for something irrational is much, much higher than the burden of proof for something rational. If you say product's not selling, we're going to cut the price. That's a five-minute board conversation. Mm. It's one of the reasons I think you need a minimum wage, by the way. Mm. Now, economists are baffled by the fact that when you put the minimum wage up, right, it doesn't seem to lead to an increase in unemployment. Now, that doesn't surprise me at all because if you think about it, let's say I'm in a company that's making a stack of money. I think that my employees would actually work harder and better if I actually paid them slightly more, mm. okay? Now, I might be right, and I might believe it, but arguing that to the finance function would be almost impossible. Whereas if I just say, I'm going to recruit 100 new people, I'm going to pay them as little as we possibly can, everybody goes, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. And there is a thing in concept in economics, in labour economics, called efficiency wages. And generally, you want to pay people a bit more than what the market rate, the clearing market rate would be. Because A, they stay around for much longer, they acquire better skills, they're more loyal, they're more committed, they're less likely to kind of nick stuff. Mm. There are all sorts of reasons for slightly overpaying people. But they're very hard reasons to get across. Whereas if you just said, okay, we're going to employ a call centre and we're going to, you know, how much are you going to pay them? Well, we'll see how little we can get away with. Yeah. That's, a, that's a kind of nod and a wink conversation. Yeah. And so one of the problems that economics has created, it's created a mode of behaviour where any deviation from it is automatically difficult and viewed with suspicion. Yeah, and it, it sounds like, because you've just mentioned there, because the where great strides have been made, where true alchemy is being created, is usually... But genuinely, I mean, television, by the way, is alchemy because it uses its knowledge of human perception to produce 176,000 colours in our head mm. while only generating three. Yeah, yeah. And that's because the cones in our eyes are variously sensitive to three parts of the light spectrum, roughly speaking, red, green, blue. Mm. Okay. And by having a red, a green, and a blue LED in your Samsung curvy telly, yeah. you can, by varying the relative intensity of those three stimuli, you can create pretty much every colour that exists in the physical spectrum. Weirder still, you can create colours that don't even exist in physics, like magenta. Yeah, 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 yeah. So magenta is actually entirely a mental creation mm. because it's the unexplained absence of green. You're firing red and blue at someone and no green. And the brain goes, that's weird, because halfway between red and blue on the spectrum is green. So with red and blue, I'd expect to be seeing green, but I can detect green and I'm not seeing any. Mm. So magenta is a colour that doesn't exist in physics, that exists in your head to cope with the unexplained absence of, blue, uh, of green. Yeah, and that's, I mean, another example in nature I'm very fond of in alchemy is the chilli which as well as being the single greatest food ingredient, certainly if you're British or Indian, mm -hmm. the most essential food ingredient, it isn't hot. It creates capsaicin, which triggers a, a cell receptor in the human mouth, and presumably in the anus, which is normally triggered by heat, but is also triggered by capsaicin. Mm. 
So when you put a chili in your mouth, the sensation's indistinguishable from putting something hot in. Because that feels like, in nature, the alchemy comes from um, kind of being exposed to different elements. And maybe for us, alchemy comes from the meaning that we give. Yes, so you can... Um uh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of fakery in nature, and there's a lot of there's a lot of false advertising in nature. Orchids, uh, you know, the um, uh, extremely dishonest. Yeah. Um, uh, but the the alchemy thing is that it what you have to do is you have to produce very interestingly. Apparently, the general idea that female birds are much drabber than male birds is sometimes wrong, which is that. If you see a female bird through bird vision, which includes ultraviolet and I think has, in the case of pigeons, has five colour sensors, female birds are often a hell of a lot more com- uh, colourful than they look to humans. Mm. And so you have this very interesting thing that, of course, all printed and displayed images, whether in a magazine uh, or in a, on a television, are actually species-specific. Now, I think gorillas and other higher primates have yeah. the same vision setup that we do. Yeah. But if you showed a, a bird a picture of a ripe banana, okay, and you said, that's strange, the bird doesn't seem to be interested in the banana, okay, it might be that what looks like a ripe yellow banana to human vision in a magazine oh, looks like a green banana to a bird, so it goes totally unripe, not interested. Yeah. So this is really strange because... What you have to understand, this is also true in advertising, that the same thing can be perceived very differently depending on the, mm-hmm. the, the context and the mental f- frame of the viewer. Yeah. You know, so, so I mean, it, that's a really strange thing. So you could actually make the conclusion using a photograph that birds don't like yellow bananas when actually what it is is an artefact of the way you've presented the information on a photograph or on a TV screen, rather than actually, because that isn't that, that looks like a ripe banana to a human, to a bird it looks like something totally different. Well, that's when your metric defines what is right or wrong. Well, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because metrics that don't account for perception mm-hmm. are kind of stupid. Because if the purpose is, right, if, now, if you're measuring something like length, duration, weight, whatever, using SI units, and you're success can be purely defined in non-human objective terms, mm-hmm. right? Then what you're doing is fine. Go ahead, engineer. You know, go ahead, physicist. You do your best stuff. If, if your objective includes some form of human preference, behavior, choice, or, or whatever, or emotion, you may go, how can I basically cancel this flight while pissing people off as little as possible? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a perceptual aim. Okay. It's not, it's not a physical objective aim. It's actually something entirely about human perception. And there isn't a science of doing that. Now, the, the, the economists would just say you give them money, right? But actually, that may not be what it's about at all. What it they really want that, is... Yeah, yeah. You don't go around someone's house for dinner and go, that was lovely. That was lovely. Just Here's 50. Seven quid. Just going to leave seven quid, yeah. It, is mm. that because we're in a capitalist society and we're letting the markets decide and everything has to be measured. It's quite an interesting book called The Limits to Markets by, and I'm just trying to remember who on earth wrote it, I think the father and son. Is it the Skidelskys? It might be. It might be something like that. Um, but that's a really interesting concept because undoubtedly there are areas where markets operate uh, fairly well and that human psychology and market... Um, 
action effectively coincide fairly well. I'd also say there are areas where they really, really don't. So I'll give you an example of something which is interesting, which is, um, I'll give you a really clear, clear case where markets and human anthropological instinct don't coincide, and that's price gouging. If you talk to people who studied economics, okay, uh, or you talk to people who've been to business school, and you say, there's been a really heavy snowfall, so demand for snow shovels surges. Should Walmart double the price of snow shovels? Mm. Everybody who studied economics goes, yes, supply and demand, mm. blah, 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 blah. And that increasing the price of snow shovels will ensure that snow shovels go to the people who most need them. Okay. Same thing he worked in the wire, I imagine. <clears throat> uh, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, if you actually look at what humans think is fair, they go, piss off. No, that's not on. If you look at what Walmart does, it has a kind of weather and catastrophe centre at the centre of Walmart. And they make damn sure if there's going to be heavy snow, they'll send a whole load of shovels there and they'll sell more of them, but they won't put the price up. If there's going to be a hurricane, they send lots of nails and hammers and um, uh, weatherboarding, but they don't put the price up. Mm. And the reason is that basically, I think there's a great quote in Thaler's book about a ski resort which said, yes, logically, you should charge people more at the peak of season, but it basically said, if you gouge them at Christmas, they don't come back at spring. Yeah. And that's really a thing because, of course, economics doesn't really understand the non-ergodicity of human life, yeah. which is that over time, we see ourselves in a relationship with a supplier. and But also, it doesn't understand a very interesting thing, which I think is fundamental, which is... In John Locke's paper, Venditio, written about 1690, he asked the question, which St. Augustine also asked, about the question of the just price. And um, what was interesting there was that he accepts the fact that you, you're not obliged to sell everything you own at the market price. If you've got a horse, which at a market would fetch five guineas, say, and... Um, you really like the horse, so to you it's worth seven or eight guineas. Someone comes along and offers you five guineas for the horse, you're not obliged to sell it. You know, mm. the, what something's worth to you and your rights of ownership mean you don't have to sell your house um, at a market price. But, on the other hand, if someone came along and said, I really, really need a horse because my son is drowning, mm. and you said, well, since your son's drowning, I'm going to charge you a hundred guineas. Yeah. Nearly everybody sees that as immoral, including John Locke, that to take advantage of someone's misfortune to make a market profit. Now, two examples of that, the Coke machine, which was famously advanced in the 1970s, where the price would go up in hot weather. Mm. That was generally viewed as immoral. Um, it was, you know, now I said, if you'd framed it differently and said, in cold weather, we drop the price, down, yeah. people would go, yeah, that's kind of fine. Mm. Maybe if you told a story which said in hot weather we need to charge 10 cents more because we've got to replenish the machine more frequently. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe there's an argument for that. Weirdly, now, I, now I'm not, I haven't studied economics. Um, uh, quite a lot of places, if you're Tesco and you're a 24-hour Tesco, I personally would regard it as fair to pop the prices up by 10% between 10pm and 6 in the morning. Hmm. Okay. Um, my dad would... Um, I, what, what, what would your take be on that? Most people won't do it. Most people regard that as a bomb. Now, I would say, look, you're staying open for 24 hours. It's really useful that I can buy milk and nappies at 2 o'clock in the morning. Mm. There isn't that much traffic. It doesn't seem unfair to me that you get an extra 10% on the nappies for keeping the store open. 
most consumers go, no fucking way. Yield management, because because they just, you know, is it the well, kind of... Well, in a way, you have to teach people to accept yield management. Yeah. Um, weirdly, when it first started, Laker Airlines, you got the bargain fares by booking late. So it actually started the other way around. I think they've educated people because there's a general belief that the earlier you book, the cheaper it is. Mm. People kind of accept that as sort of moral. Now, it isn't actually as exact as that because the prices will occasionally go up and then down and then up again. I don't think it's always curving one way. Yeah. But nobody checks after they book their flight because they don't want to be depressed. So, as it happens, everybody believes Someone that basically, in the queue will be like, oh, if I book now, it will either be the same or more expensive tomorrow. Yeah. And we kind of accept that, I think. Okay. okay. Um, we accept it as a trade-off. But I think it took a few decades for people to buy into it. In the case, one case where I regard it as uh, immoral, which both trains and aircraft do, I said... Um, Although an economist would disagree with me, let's say you've bought a ticket to a flight or you've bought a ticket for a train to Sheffield, which is only for the 12 o'clock Sheffield, London Sheffield train. Okay? Yeah. And you bought it for, let's say, 70 quid first class single advance. And you miss the train by five minutes. Oh, okay. Um, and then, now what happens is they say, well, a full fare ticket is going to cost you 190 quid. Okay. And you say, what about the 70 quid I paid for that mm. ticket? That doesn't count. Yeah. You've, yeah, got, yeah, you've got to yeah. basically void £70 pounds for your, your, your wasted ticket and you've got to pay us the full fare fee. Now, to an economist, I think that's okay. I said, I, I said this to the airline yesterday. I said, I, I, I think you should actually say, we'll discount your... If you hand us your wasted ticket, yeah. we'll knock that off the price of the full fare ticket. Because A, don't turn insult into injury. Yeah. But B... The person's only just missed the train by, you know, five things. Particularly if the if the next train is pretty empty, right? Slightly different if the next train's really, really full. Yeah. Okay? <clears throat> if the next train's fairly empty, uh, and therefore, you know, there's no way you're going to sell out that train anyway, I think you knock off the 70 quid because uh, just in terms of perception of human fairness, that's a case where a market person mm. would design things differently, looking purely at the cost to the provider. I personally think you should be able to trade in your um, uh, your advance ticket for a, a full fare. And because they're scared that people are going to gain the system, but sometimes if you go... That, my way, you couldn't gain the system. That's a good thing. I mean, I have done that. I've got on an earlier train and just relied on the bloke being a bit nice. Yeah, I've done that. And uh, the argument is with the earlier train, what's the worst you can do? You can say, right, you've got to get off at New Northgate and wait for the proper train. And yeah. I kind of go, well, if you want me to do that, I'll yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah. But I mean, you know, and, and, and generally, actually, they're quite nice, especially if they're northern. Because they tend to be a bit warm, you know. Yeah, I mean, the salt earth. Um, But sometimes as well, you think, if they just put in a little bit of friction into the, okay, you can have your money back, but you have to write us a letter or something that is just a little bit of friction to go, (coughs) you know, not everyone's going to go out of the way to do that and try and gain the system as well. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, I, I, mean, I think you're fairly safe there because no one's going to game the system because you're not actually gaining, you're just not, not paying yes, twice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, you'd have to check they didn't give their earlier ticket to someone else because mm. obviously that would be a gaming yeah, of the system. Yeah, yeah. But since they're handing you the ticket which they had for the earlier train, likewise with a flight, I'd do the same thing. I'd go, um, I'd certainly give people the discretion to do that because I think 
refusing to do that is a bit of a bastard thing to do. You know, you've given... They're pissed off already because they've given you 70 quid and got nothing. Yeah. Okay. Just deaden the pain a little bit here. Mm. And that's a case like price gouging where what an economist would do and think right and what a human being thinks okay ain't the same thing. Now, the basic thing is if it's economics versus evolutionary psychology, you've got to go with evolutionary psychology because it's older and it's yeah, harder to change. You know, the alternative is you teach everybody economics, in which case society would basically collapse <laughs> under the weight of its own psychopathy. Well, it made me think that uh, alchemy, and you touch on this in the book, alchemy goes on in nature all the yep. time. So, you, I mean, the ancient Greeks did it when they designed the Parthenon. They designed the Parthenon to look rectangular, not to mm. be rectangular. There are loads of curves all over the place in reality. Um, it, it made me think that one area where it, a lot of alchemy goes on, because before we said um, sometimes these, not bold ideas, but you have to be... CEOs can make these decisions, but actually, one area where it works... Because CEOs are allowed to be alchemists because they don't have to report to everybody else. Yes. Branson, when he handed out the chalk ices... Now, to explain to American listeners, or non-British listeners, in fact, for a long time in Britain, you had a chalk ice when you went to the cinema, so it was a like popcorn. Mm. We didn't know what popcorn was when we were, like, seven. Yeah, I mean, when I was yeah, a kid, yeah. I hadn't got a clue. What the fuck's that, <laughs> right? You had a chalk ice, not popcorn. We've Americanized our cinemas yeah. now, so everybody, mm. for some bizarre reason, there's this, these, this is a wonderful bit of psychology, isn't it? Why watching a film and eating popcorn go together is totally fucking Because cinemas weird. have tried to introduce new foods for like the past 30 years and just can't do it. Can't do it. Yeah. Isn't it bizarre? Yeah, yeah. It's weird. No idea what's going on there. I don't yeah. you know. And, um, but the interesting thing there is that um, the chalk ice was, was something Branson could introduce because mm. no one's going to make Ricky Branson, who owns the airline, do a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. Right? The point is that everybody else who's trying to be rational, by definition, the first rule of science and rationality is no magic. And therefore, even if alchemy works, weirdly, people don't want to believe in it because it messes with their mental models. Mm. If you've got a kind of reductionist mental model... You know, if you've got a kind of Cartesian approach to the world in your head, mm. you don't want to um, uh, admit the existence of alchemy because it seems messy. Well, it made me think that one area where you don't have to be bold and kind of to a, a room full of people and say, OK, this is what we're going to do, is online. That's where an interesting you can one. test with technology so quickly different things. It wasn't like Uber had to say, okay, so we're going to put a picture of the car on the map <coughs> and then, you know, it gets signed off and goes to different levels. It was just like, well, we could design it now and we could probably get it in the app by half too. Well, it's very interesting because, yeah, when you get really repeated experimentation, so you could produce, you see, the way I always describe economics is a bit like a tube map. It's a good schematic diagram of the tube, mm. right? But it's not a map of London. yeah. yeah. And people start using it, and they first of all start going, oh, that's quite handy if I need to get from Gouge Street to blah, blah, blah. Mm. First of all, it contains its own inherent distortions because it's not geographically accurate. It's not a map. Yeah. It's a schematic diagram. Yeah. Sometimes people will end up taking the tube from Leicester Square to Covent Garden mm. where you could walk it in about two minutes. Yeah. Okay. Now, don't try walking from, what is it, Latimer and Harrow and <laughs> Wheelston to Latimer and Godston. Because it's only one stop, but it's probably three and a half miles, yeah. okay? Um, you can walk from Paddington to Lancaster Gate. If you arrive at Paddington Station, you just want to get the central line. Don't dick around going around to Notting Hill Gate. 
just wander down to Lancaster Gate, and there's a lift as well, so it's quite handy. Okay, but you know, so it's not it's not perfect even of itself, unless you purely define the success as I want to use the tube to get from this tube station to that tube station. In that case, under those very narrow conditions of I am only using the tube, I'm not using any other form of transportation, and I need to get from one to the other, the tube will be mostly reliable. Mm. Not perfect even then. Apparently, the central line is overused because it's horizontal and in a straight line and goes east-west. The Victoria line, which is the fastest of the lot, okay, is underused because it's a wiggly diagonal. Mm. And it took me ages. I was always, oh, fucking hell, Euston Station. What a pain in the ass. How do you get there, right? Because it's not really on the circle line because it's Euston Square. And if you've got luggage, it's not really there. And I didn't see the Victoria line going from Victoria to Euston because it's a sort of weird diagonal. You get there in about four minutes. I was taking taxis, which is taking like 30 minutes. (laughs) Okay. And the bloody tube gets you there about six or seven minutes. It's fantastic. It's teleportation. But the, the map makes it less visually congruent because it's uh, v- visually salient because it's, it's diagonal. But, okay, within those constraints, it's a pretty good model. If you start using it as a map of London, you go hopelessly wrong. You don't understand South London at all because uh, South London runs on railways. You'll make totally dumb decisions about how you get from St Pancras to here to Blackfriars because it doesn't tell you that Thameslink exists. Mm. So you must come into King's Cross, do you, from Sheffield? Uh, same. Pancras. Oh, you've got to Pancras. Yeah, which is amazing, isn't it? The... So how, how long was it before you discovered? Oh, yeah, like six months. Six months, yeah. 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 So was that me ranting about it? I think you may have ranted. Yeah, because yeah, 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 a lot yeah. of people said, well, I'm coming, yeah, coming to King's Cross yeah, or St Pancras. Yeah. It's a real nuisance. We go all the way yeah, around on the circle and yeah, walk yeah, across yeah, the bridge. Yeah, no, no, like, you go down the escalator, sit at the front of the train, so drops you off next yeah. to the door. It's a dream, isn't yeah, it, really? Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's really great. If you're really slick, too, you can use the Starbucks app to order your coffee from St Pancras Starbucks as you're coming up the escalator, so it's waiting for you. So, you know, you can, that's, you yeah. know, that's one of those... Again, that's an interesting way of playing with time, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you don't need to reduce the time it takes to make a coffee. You need mm. to reduce waiting time, yeah, which is a yeah. different thing. Yeah. One's psychological, the other's kind of physical. And, um, but, and, and, and so when people start treating... This is with markets. They start treating the tube map as if it's a map of London. Mm. People start treating economics as if it's a map of human behaviour, mm. and it isn't. It's a map of a very narrow... Um, part of human behaviour operating under considerable assumptions. And somewhere, on, sometimes on the map, the assumptions don't matter. Sometimes on the map, the assumptions are fatal. Mm. You know, the assumption of perfect information and perfect trust yeah, in yeah. economics is a nonsense. You know, because actually, if, if you've got an eBay feed, uh, feedback rating of 95%, you can't sell anything at yeah, any price. Yeah. Um, 4.1 you know, is better absence. than 5. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, 4.9 is better than 5, I think, on Uber, because it suggests you've taken quite a lot of trips. Yeah. So people infer that the fact that, okay, you've maybe taken 100 trips and you've been a bit of a dickhead mm. once. Yeah. Whereas someone with a 5 might have actually been kicked off the system yeah. and rejoined yeah. under a fake yeah. name, for yeah. all you know. Whereas 4.9 is a much better Uber rating than 5. Mm. Um, and all Uber drivers say that they get the best you can be yeah, you, you mean like a nice 4.9 5 were a bit okay in the same way if you've got an eBay rating of 100% you've only sold three things yeah. it's not as good as having an eBay rating of 99.8 mm. and you've sold 2,000 things yeah, yeah. Um, and what's so clever is we do that instinctively 
But it's also proof, which is fantastic, I think, it's proof of the human urge that in making decisions under uncertainty, downside variance reduction is as important as optimization. Mm. It's no good going for the best. It's like getting married, okay? I think it's why nobody marries a, wants to marry a supermodel, <laughs> really, because in 99 of out of 100 dimensions, they're the perfect person you could marry, yeah. but 1% of them's batshit crazy. <laughs> Right? You know, you're going to wake up and find all your clothes have been slashed to pieces, right? And you go, the, you know, the upside optimization doesn't outweigh the downside yeah, yeah, catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, you know, once you understand satisficing, which is Herbert Simon's great thing, you realise that economics is a very inaccurate. When people are satisficing, they're not trying to maximise their own utility. Unless you redefine a utility possibly over time, because if you look at time series probability, um, it makes much more sense to worry about downside than it does if you look at ensemble. Now, look, look I'm going to stop this here because every time I talk about this, Anna goes, you can't have, you can't have ergodicity economics at free economics because it's too nerdy. And I go, but it's really important. Look, yeah, yeah. If you're interested in this, go and look at Ole Peters' work. Um, there's a blog called Ergodicity Economics, which is all about how the economist's failure to understand the non-ergodic nature of a single human life, mm. by which I mean that, you know, one catastrophe, you know, outweighs everything. Yeah, yeah. At a very simple level, okay, um, if I offered a thousand, not that I do this, if I offered a thousand people a million quid to play Russian roulette once, mm. I'd get some takers. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't do it. You know. Also, I don't think you get funding for the experiment, would you? Because they probably the science and education no research council. No, 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 exactly. I got to pay Kickstarter. I, I want a million. I, I want a million quid. So I, you know, I want a billion pounds. So I can bribe a thousand people to play Russian roulette. Now, if you offer one person a billion quid to play Russian roulette a thousand times, nobody's going to say yes. Okay, because they're going to end up dead, right? And so, in the same way, ensemble probability is less cautious than time series. Mm. An evolved brain which runs on time series probability is going to be more cautious than a brain that operates on an economist's assumption right. that ensemble probability is a guide to expected utility. Because I think you say that, you talk about this in the book, I think, towards the end where you're saying, it's not that you don't, it's not that... It's always about being less rational. We still need to make rational decisions. But it's just about asking new questions, which might escape. Yeah, I mean, I loved Gerd Gigerenza, Nudgestock, June the 7th, tickets still available, <laughs> nudgestock.co.uk. Gerd Gigerenza's concept of ecological rationality, that in the real world, mm. what's rational is very different from what's rational in a mathematical mm. uh, model. Because the artificiality of the mathematical model, particularly if it doesn't account for the non-ergodicity and path dependence of life, is actually going to give you a wrong reading. Mm. My theory in marketing, which is, I think, my lifetime contribution to marketing, is that brands are chiefly popular with, human, with the human instinct because they're a reliable sign that of minimal downside variance. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it's not that the Samsung television is always going to be the best TV I can buy. If I buy a Samsung as opposed to a Wongwei TV mm. and I pay $150 more for the Samsung, I'm paying that $150 for reasons actually I don't consciously fully understand because we talk about our decisions as though we're maximizers. That's why yeah, economics yes, is so yeah, convincing. Yeah, yeah. We go, I'm trying to buy the best TV yes, I can yeah, for $500. Yeah, yeah. No, we're not. No. 
what we're trying to do is we're trying to buy a pretty good TV for five hundred dollars, which definitely isn't shit. Yeah, that's why we go as Nassim points out in his book Skin in the Game. It's why Milan Station, centre of some of the greatest restaurants in the world, the McDonald's is really full. Yeah, because people haven't got much time. Yeah. They haven't got the time to go and go on TripAdvisor, travel the yeah. What they want is some food that definitely isn't shit. Mm. Didn't and kill you want, last time. Didn't kill you last time. No, nope, didn't kill you last yeah. time. You've been there loads of times before. It's always the same. Yeah. Um, it's never unpleasant. Whatever you say about the Golden Arches, okay, it's pretty tasty, right? It um, It's clean, it's safe, you don't get ripped off, and you never get the shits. It's got okay? that I mean, it's, um, effect for the kids as well, hasn't it, McDonald's? It's like, it's worth, I was saying this to someone the other day, it's worth more than three quid for a Happy Meal or whatever. Because it's that suggestion of a bit of a treat for the kids. Yeah, yeah. It's <coughs> very interesting. It's a very interesting question, which is, do kids... I mean, I'm always intrigued by my teenage kids' obsession with Nando's. I mm. quite like Nando's. Yeah, that, yeah. But I don't really get the... You think, oh, it's yeah. Nando's. Yeah, no, what, yeah. I don't get me wrong, I've got no, I've got no animus against Nando's, yeah. but I don't quite understand No, it's, yeah, I've never got the... It's quite expensive for what it is. It is, yeah. I mean, we're probably talking ourselves out of a Nando's. I mean, the argument is that it's kind of the... It's kind of like the happy medium between fast food and a restaurant yeah. meal. And also as well, you pay for your own meal, which I imagine for a 15-year-old kid is massive. And somebody told me the big thing is that you pay most of the shit up front. Yeah. So the big fear of a kid is you go into a restaurant, mm. you run up a bill which you can't pay. Yeah. Uh, and so the fact that you pay up front, you know, when they're not sure whether their card's going to work or yeah. whatever... It's like the classless um, restaurant, that's what they call it, isn't it? The class, and it yeah. is, yeah. Interestingly, it's an interesting question. Would you get, if, if the fat duck at Bray allowed you to pay up front, <laughs> would it be full of teenage kids? You know, yeah, you know, Heston there with a load of kids wearing party hats, you know. But um, there's something there going on, isn't there, which is about the way you pay, the way you order, um, and it somehow manages to do it. It's, it's just captured the zeitgeist somehow. Um, Do you think books like yours, hopefully, um, gives people, books about behavioural science, give people a bit of, because like you said, you have to be brave to make some of these things. Give us a bit of a language. If there's space, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if you can create a kind of language where you say this isn't logical, it's psychological, different rules apply. Can we have some space in this discussion for going off the grid, by which I mean off the standard economist tube map of how the world works, mm. and saying, what if it's actually different? So the, the crazy thing is the government had this thing called um, an ISA in the UK, and you were allowed to save £3,000 a year, and then all the proceeds and the gains were tax-free. And, you know, anybody earning, let's say, 40,000 a year thought, I'd better put in three grand, you know, because otherwise I'm missing out. Mm. Maybe someone earning 20,000 a year thought, I'd better put in one of the three grand so I don't miss yeah. out totally. Then they made the fucking limit like 20 grand, right? Now, I'm in the richest, I don't know, single digit percentage yeah. of the population. Yeah. And it removed my impetus to save because I go, well, I could almost chuck some money in next yeah. year. Right when it was three grand, I thought I'd better use up my allowance, you know, to get the, to to max yeah. out on this thing. Yeah. The second they made it twenty, the impetus to save, unless you're bloody super rich, is actually reduced mm. because you're going well. There's no particular hurry here, is there? You know what? You know why save five grand now when it, you know I could maybe pop ten in. I'm never going to put ten in next mm. year. 
But it's an absolutely daft thing to do. Pensions, they should actually have a pretty clear ceiling. Because this is a thing called the fence paradox. Um, and there are two Italian guys, one at the University of Delft, Delft in Holland, and one called Luca Deliana on Twitter. I can't remember the guy at Delft's name, but he looks Italian as well. I think it's one of the most important contributions to psychology in ages. I hope I've got that right. Luca Deliana, I think it is, right. Um, and his point is that actually fences have a weird thing. If you make something the limit, people naturally tend to cluster close to the limit. So that's why the banking crisis was a disaster. Because when you took away individual judgment and said, we're going to regulate you, everybody's natural heuristic became, I'm going to sail as close to the wind as the regulator allows to maximise my profit. And I'm going to outsource the responsibility for judgment to the regulator. And if you put a speed limit in a road, people sometimes... You know, if you're on a winding country road and you actually have national speed limit, people might try and drive too fast because they go, oh, well, you know, I can always drive at the maximum speed. That's always OK. It isn't. Um, and in the same way, the housing crisis in Britain was caused by the fact that people developed the assumption that you could borrow four and a half times income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And once you could borrow four and a half times income, everybody thought, what's the correct price to spend on a house? multiply our combined income by four and a half, add to that what our deposit amount would be, whatever we managed to save or gain from the sale of our last house, max it out. Now, think about this, right? If we bought cars the way we bought houses, so I went into my local car dealership mm -hmm. and said, okay, what's the most I can afford to spend on a car? And they said, the government rules say the most you can spend on a car is this multiple of your salary. Mm -hmm. I'd end up in a fucking Bugatti Veyron, right? <laughs> Right? You know, it's totally crazy. And so actually, by replacing judgment with rules, you actually fragilise the market because mm. you make it more homogeneous. Yeah, you create anchors that people... You create anchors that everybody yeah. then, then yeah. Uh, resides around. And the natural variance between the cautious and the less cautious, which makes a thing less fragile because you have... What you might have is you have canaries in the mine who are, you know, super risky people start going bust. Mm. And then the other cautious people have a bit of a delay before they start exploding, yeah, you know. Yeah, okay. So then, you know, there's a degree of kind of like canary in the mine, you know, yeah, the most high yeah, risk people yeah. start collapsing. Then, uh, then other people can then spot that and react. But when you have the fence problem, which is, you know, bank capitalization rules under Basel II, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Everybody clusters at the same point and therefore collapse is simultaneous and systemic rather than proportionate and gradual. Yeah. So it's, a, it's, I mean, I think that fence paradox thing, it's a guy at the University of Delft, um, I'm going to keep mentioning him mm. and I'll try and find his Twitter we'll put address. put it on the link. We can put it on the link. Because it's a really important idea. Um, you know, student loans. Every single university charges what the maximum student loan amount is. Because governments as well, I mean, some governments have been more... Governments have led, like, especially in the UK, governments have led behavioural science more than the market. I mean, you know, kind of behavioural science has always been in market and it's maybe fell out of favour. Well, I think it was done instinctively. I mean, the, the yeah, great phrase that Amos like... Tversky said... And marketers tend to do it instinctively, but the problem is, is they always run into economists mm. who say this doesn't make sense. The great marketers uh, feel like they're really good behavioural scientists. <coughs> like, creative people are just arguably... I'll give you an example. There's a credit card which is quite generous when you use it overseas, okay, and it doesn't charge you currency conversion charges. 
And they said, what should we do about this to tell people that we don't charge currency conversion charges? And I said, a boring person would just write to people and go, we don't charge currency conversion charges. Mm. The cunning way to do it is to say, opt into our international traveller programme for £4 a year and we'll waive all our currency conversion charges. Because several things happen. One, they're really eager to use your card to get their four quid back. Two, they believe it's a benefit because you're charging for it, right? Whereas otherwise you could just be bullshitting. And so understanding the way humans make inferences from information. Economics would say, tell them it's free. Psychology would say, charge a token amount for it because it gives it a different meaning. Amazing, Rory. I think we're going to have to leave it there, but that is amazing. When is the book out? I've read it. It is... Kind of the the really it's nice thing May is just the, the, the chapters ninth. are so short. No, no, just, toilet read. Definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the the, the um the chapters are actually written to coincide with the average length of the human bowel movement. Um, but um, uh, Bob Trivers was saying that he really Bob loves Trivers the way in which the chapters are independent in themselves. And I, I, I I'm I, I'm that actually a lot of the credit that goes to my wife, not to me. I have mm. to say, which is that she said, okay, you've written this thing. It's full of good, good stuff. Which mm. I hope she'd say that anyway, uh, regardless. But you need to break it up. And, and actually, the publisher, the designer, and my wife have been instrumental in saying break it up into small pieces because actually, um, uh, you know, you, it, it's better to be a tapas book than a kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a, a two-course meal. That's what Daniel Kahneman food. said on it. That he said he hoped thinking faster than slow would just get people to talk more about gossip. Oh, gossip was his yeah. hope. And his, yeah, his hope was, he said, that I don't think it fundamentally changes how we think about ourselves because it's too deeply ingrained, mm. but it might change the nature of gossip or change the nature of interpersonal discussion. So you go, are you sure you're not suffering from, you know, you're about to go on holiday while you're actually severely ill. Mm. Are you sure this isn't sunk cost bias? Yes, yeah. You know, in other words, you can't... Sunk cost bias is an interesting one because I'm sure at some level it's not a bias. Mm. Okay, I don't think it's always irrational, sunk cost bias. And if you think about life non-ergodically... Uh, someone who had no sunk cost bias at all would probably abandon too many things. Yeah. Um, I need to talk to Ole about that to explain why, you know, to ask the question. Um, but at the same time, sometimes, uh, uh, the one thing I have been very grateful to, where I think my evolved psychology may be out of line with my uh, personal hedonics, mm. is that business. My wife and I were once, we bought some tickets to Brussels, I think, and both of us went down with flu. And we were there packing, basically feeling shit. And I said, look, it's not as if the rest of this holiday is going to be free. We've got to pay for hotels. We've got to pay for restaurant meals. We've got yeah. to pay for all the other crap. Um, to be absolutely honest, would either of us now be booking these tickets to Brussels, mm-hmm. feeling as ill as we do now? Yeah. No. Yeah. I said, OK, let's not go. Yeah. And a few of those decisions I've been grateful for. Equally, if you had no sunk cost bias, you'd never go to any of the best parties in your life, would you? You know, yeah. you know, because some of those things do depend on commitment, which is you commit to your friend's party at time point A. At time point B, you don't feel like going, but you make yourself go and you kind of have a great time. And that might mean that your judgment about what's a good time is better at time point A than it is at time point B. At time point B, you're sitting down in front of the telly, you know, you can't face getting changed, you can't face having a shower, 
But actually, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. when you admit, when you agreed to go to that party, you might have been actually your judgment when the party was three months away about whether it was fun might weirdly have been better than your judgment. You know, two hours before you're due to leave for the party. Late night flights. Well, so tell me, yeah, more. Late night, like when you when you book a flight. Mm. Three months in advance, you're like, yeah, I'll be fine with that flight. Oh, no, I'm, I, I'm the same with early flights, which yes, is three yeah, months yeah, in advance. Yeah, I go, oh, yeah, yeah, six o'clock in the morning, brilliant, fine, yeah, that'll yeah. be fine, yeah. And then you realise you have to get up at like half oh, one in the morning. fucking <laughs> hell, you know, the night before. And then what happens is you save 40 quid by flying at six o'clock in the morning, right? I've done this, okay. So you go, oh, no, oh, no, on the EasyJet flights, are £20 cheaper if I go on 6am, yeah. right? So you saved 80 quid for your family it's the of the metrics price. But then what ends up happening is you go, I'm never going to get the bastards up at four in the morning. Yeah. You end up going to get with the night before, booking a hotel that costs you 120 quid, and then taking the kids out to Pizza Express in Gatwick, yeah. okay, which costs you another 70. And you go, well, that was fucking clever, wasn't it? Right? And no, you're absolutely right. That actually, um, at some level, if you look at our decision-making, um, some ability to make commitments and stick with them is necessary to the workings of human society mm -hmm. too, isn't it? You know, if I never gave a talk that I didn't feel like giving um, 10 minutes before giving, yeah. I'd never have given yeah. a single talk, yeah. you know, because let's be honest, you know, someone rings up and say your talk this evening's cancelled. My general reaction is, well, hey, you know, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, generally when meetings are cancelled, we're actually yeah. quite pleased, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, like, oh, time. That's, you know, yeah. a plus. Okay, but but actually, you know, we can't actually rely on our preference at the specific moment. Yes. Sometimes you've got to be able to commit and stick with something. Um, well, I hope people commit and stick me too. to your book. Yeah. It is amazing. I absolutely flew through it. Have you done an audio? Yep, I, uh, the audio books uh, read, read by myself. Yeah, um, right. they're the best so, ones, aren't they? I know. Well, you see, the great thing is you can add a few digressions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's only you the can go off on one, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, and the other thing is apparently, if you record audio books with actors, the whole thing is obsessively about accuracy, so they can't even change "do not" to "don't." Yeah. So if you've got a voice professional reading your audio book, mm. if your book says "do not," mm. they have to say yeah. "I do not." Yeah. They can't say "I don't." Yeah, yeah. And if they wanted to say I don't, they have to ring the author and ask for permission. Well, that's daft. Because spoken English isn't quite the same as written English. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you'd be weird, in my view, sticking to an absolute script. You know, I bet Dickens, when he did his readings around mm. the US, I bet he kind of riffed a bit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And um, so I like I like recording myself. I, I found it quite uh, quite fun. And it also allowed you to kind of slightly rework things where you thought, well... This is an okay written sentence, but conversationally, it's a bit, you know, it's a, it's yeah, a bit convoluted. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. When is it out? I think it's May the 9th. I hope I got that right. Something like that, anyway. Cool, May the 9th. We'll put a link out. You can pre, a week on Thursday, you can pre-book it on Amazon as well. And there, that's perfect on point that to end. On that bombshell. Thank you, Rory. Absolute Thank pleasure. Thank Thanks you. very much Bye. indeed. Hello. Big thanks to Rory there. Um, Alchemy, the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense, is out now in all good bookshops and some rubbish ones too. Uh, it is amazing. I'm not contractually obliged to say that. Uh, it just is. Um, big thanks to Julian Goodkind and all the Sound Lounge. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and check out our blog, uh, our Obehave on Tumblr as well. Till next time, bye. Bye.